Hey, if you know my son, Andrew, then you might know that Andrew has what we like to call something of an, an obsessive personality. It's a, a trait that seems to run throughout some of the members of my family. My uncle kind of had it. And so all throughout his life, there have been these, these waves, these seasons, where all he seems to think about or imagine is one thing. Now, that one thing changes from time to time, but it's usually just one thing at a time. Uh, his very first obsession, believe it or not, was garage doors. He'd grab like a napkin at the restaurant or whatever, like a piece of paper, and he'd kind of do this thing on a table where he'd slide it off. And, and so he was thinking about garage doors and kind of how they'd, they'd make that motion. He'd, he'd talk about garage doors as we are driving down the road and he saw one opening or closing. Like, I don't know what it was, but this kid loved garage doors. And eventually that shifted to, to trains. So he'd, he'd play with trains. He'd build trains. He'd watch anything he could on trains. And so sometimes I'd even like pull up a, a YouTube video that was an hour or two long from the, the cockpit of some train somewhere. And he'd sit there just mesmerized by it. It was his absolute favorite thing. And he, he loved watching like uh, this show called Dinosaur Train. And he loved Thomas. Uh, he loved all these train shows. Well, garage doors became trains and trains became drums and drums became some other things along the way. But eventually we came to superpowers. And so with some regularity in my home, ever since he started watching The Incredibles, I'm asked this question like, Dad, if you could have any superpower in the world, which one would you want? And so I usually say something like flying or invisibility or something before he, he proceeds to kind of go on this long prologue. Uh, speech about his like his top three choices and like the pros and cons of each and like it's clear that like, he's given a great deal of thought to that question what superpower would he want and if you ask him why like why do you want superpowers it's almost like you just asked the most insanely obvious question there is like of course it's it's to defeat bad guys or more specifically supervillains and I hear that and I chuckle because I remember having those feelings as a kid myself I felt like that when I got my first BB gun, like I was now equipped to go and, and save people from bad guys. I felt like that when I, I would take these plastic knives with Elmer's glue and I'd stick them here between my fingers trying to be like Wolverine. I was kind of disappointed that the glue didn't dry. But there's something deep in Andrew's heart right now that believes people need to be saved from evil. And as I look back on my own childhood, there was something deep in my own heart that believed that people needed to be saved from evil. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to look at our world and to discern that people everywhere believe that there are people who need to be saved from evil. It's fundamental to life on earth for us. It's all around us right now. It's in the news. There are good people and there are bad people. There is good, there is evil, and someone needs to be the rescuer. And so there's two questions I want you to consider this morning as we kick off week five of our One Kingdom Indivisible series. Number one. What or who is the evil that you see in the world today? And what or who is the answer? If you were here for last week's message, you know that we talked about the part of the Bible that deals with exile. That all throughout the, the biblical account, and specifically throughout Israel's story, as God's people, there have been these moments or these cycles of exile. And essentially what that, that cycle would, would go something like this. Like Israel would be given power by God, and then Israel would forget God, and so God would allow some other nation to come in and rule over Israel. So Israel would cry out to God for deliverance, and then God would, would mercifully hear their cry and deliver them, so that once again, Israel would be given power by God, 
only to forget God and start the cycle all over again. And so whether that exile was for eight years or 18 years or 20 years or 70 years or 490 years, God was trying to remind his people who had the power. And every time a foreign nation came in and conquered them, it was a painful reminder to them that it was not them. It was him. And so try as they might to to wrestle it away from God, he was teaching them a powerful and valuable lesson that we talked about last week. That power is God's to give. It is never ours to take. And every time Israel tried to take that power from God, he'd, he'd instead take their power from them. They get this nice little time out to think about what they'd done and God would eventually let them try again until finally the mother of all exiles took place. Well, this week we are moving to the next step of Israel's story. And it's the first week that we are looking to the New Testament to understand what God was up to. This week is about gospel. And if you've been around the church for any length of time at all, then then gospel is likely a word that you've heard or you've used extensively. Maybe you listen to gospel music, right? And so when we speak about the gospels, we're talking about four specific books in the New Testament. The first four that that are there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all four books have some similarities because all four tell the story of Jesus. But as you read them, as you become more familiar with them, you begin to appreciate that that each gospel account of Jesus' life or or story has some important distinctives, some important things that make it specific to that book. Either it's addressed to a specific audience or it has a, a specific theme in mind, something along those lines. And so because of where we've been in this series thus far, I'm going to be spending most of my time today in the first book of the New Testament. We call it the Gospel of Matthew, because the Gospel of Matthew was a gospel that was written to address the Jewishness of Jesus. It's a gospel account for Jewish believers, and it builds beautifully off the story of Israel's exile. And so when the, when the gospel writers begin in Matthew, it's, it's important to understand that there's been a period of something like 400 years of virtual silence from God toward his people. And so as the Old Testament draws to a close, the, the people of Israel, or more specifically Judah in this case, one of the tribes of Israel, had been taken into the most painful exile of all. They'd been taken into the land of Babylon for what they thought would be 70 years, but as the prophet Daniel eventually reveals to them, it was not 70 years, it was 70 sets of seven years. And so you do the math and you realize that's 490 years of God taking the power away from them. That's 490 years of being subject to foreign nations. And so over those 400 plus years, the, the empires would change along the way, like the empire of Babylon would give way to Persia, which would give way to Greece, which would eventually give way to Rome. And all along the way, God's special people remained this exiled people, this seemingly homeless people, even as they're in their own land. And it is in that context that the Gospels begin to tell the story of God's people once again. As Matthew begins, he introduces us to the ancestry or the genealogy of Jesus. And it's, it's easy to see all his famous ancestors of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and King David. It's easy to see that and then lose sight of, of the more subtle statement that comes 
in verse 17, where Matthew says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And that last word, that last sentence is a big deal. Because the Messiah is not a a term that was used lightly. The Messiah is who they've they've waited 400 years for. The Messiah is the prophesied one. He's the anointed one. He is the one whom God is supposed to rescue Israel with. To restore the kingdom, the power to them once again. He's the one who's supposed to save this people, this nation from evil. And so when Matthew talks about generations from, from exile to the Messiah, it's a statement not just about who Jesus is. It's a statement that the waiting, the suffering, the oppression, and the powerlessness of Israel is finally over. The kingdom is finally coming in power is returning. If you remember from last week, there was this interesting little phrase that came up again and again and again throughout the Old Testament whenever God would eventually show up to deliver or rescue his people. The phrase was, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. That whoever God was was raising up in that season as a, a rescuer, the Spirit of the Lord would show up in power and would rescue his people and set free God's people. And so it's no coincidence that Matthew begins to show us that that same Spirit was at work in this moment. In verse 18, we're told that Mary is found to be pregnant. How? Through the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, God appears to Joseph, this man pledged to be married to Mary, but who right now is a little bit puzzled as to why his supposedly virgin fiance is now pregnant. And God shows up and he says to to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people. Only this time God says something almost new, that this Jesus will save people, yes, but he's saving them not from some foreign nation as he has in the past. This time he's saving them from their sins. There's no mention of conquering kingdom. There's no mention of defeating Rome at all. Like Something different is at work this time. Now, does that mean Jesus isn't about the kingdom, that that Jesus isn't going to do all the things that he'd been expected to do all along? No, not at all. Because what we'll soon begin to see is that Jesus is everything they've been expecting him to be, a king bringing a kingdom and still nothing like what they'd expected him to be at all. Church, it is incredibly hard, uh, dare I say impossible, to cover the fullness of the gospels in one short message. But the heart of the gospel is rather simple, although maybe not what you're expecting to hear. The heart of the gospel, according to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, is this. There is a kingdom, and Jesus is the king. And what I hope to show you this morning is that those two truths, there is a kingdom, and Jesus is a king, 
are, are the glue that holds everything throughout the entirety of the biblical account together, and especially right here in the Gospels. That the coming of Jesus wasn't just some rescuing that, that was meant to just wipe away individual sins like we often think of it, and just sort of leave them where they were, wherever they're living. Let me be clear, Jesus absolutely did wipe away sins. But the coming of Jesus was a kingdom act that was meant to save a nation. It was uprooting people from the kingdoms of this world that rule over them and was instead shepherding them into a new and a perfect kingdom. And so as the Gospel of Matthew progresses, we get these continual snapshots of the implications of Jesus bringing his kingdom into this world. The first one happens in Matthew chapter 2, where King Herod, the current acting king of the Jews, catches word that a child has been born, who some consider to be the real king of the Jews. And so Herod, desperate to hold power, to take power for himself over his kingdom, conspires to have Jesus killed, but he fails. The next one happens in Matthew chapter 3, where we, we meet this man who's named John the Baptist, and he arrives, we're told, to prepare the way for the Lord. He'd been prophesied about hundreds of years prior, and John goes into the wilderness, and he begins baptizing people, and he preaches to them a message to anyone who's willing to listen. And his message is this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, he's saying, people, turn your life around, stop sinning, change your behavior, because the one who will save us has finally come near. The third one is, is Matthew 4. Satan seeks out this Messiah, this Jesus, in the wilderness to tempt him. And he tempts him with a couple of things, but his final temptation, the ultimate temptation, is this. He's basically saying, all right, Jesus, if it's a kingdom that you want, look around you. I will give you every kingdom on the face of the earth. You can have them all if you'll bow down and you'll worship me. And right there in that moment, Jesus rebukes him. And he says to him, hey, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knows and he reveals something critical right there that he won't serve two masters and he doesn't need Satan's help for what he's getting ready to do because Jesus doesn't want anything to do with the kingdoms of this world. He's come with a different kingdom in mind to rescue his people from the brokenness that they live in. And so Jesus begins to preach and he preaches the same message that John did, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In fact, Jesus was going throughout Galilee, teaching in synagogues. And what was he proclaiming? The text says he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. That's what good news is. It's the gospel, or vice versa. That's what gospel is. It's good news, right? And so kingdom language was so important to Jesus that when he sat down to give his very first recorded sermon in Matthew chapter 5, before he talked about anything else, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the kingdom of heaven forms the bookends for this entire portion that we often call the Beatitudes. It was, it was Jesus' way of sitting down with them and saying, hey, who is the kingdom of heaven for? Let me tell you. It's for the poor in spirit. It's for those who mourn. 
It's for those who hunger and thirst for things like righteousness. It's for the merciful. It's for the pure in heart. It's for the peacemakers. It's for the persecuted. That's who the kingdom of heaven is for. And so Jesus' words and his actions at the beginning of his ministry paint this this important picture that his kingdom is different than the kingdoms of this world. That his kingdom in some ways is subversive to the power and the oppression and, and kingdoms that they've lived under, whether it was King Herod or with Caesar or with every other kingdom that they've known for the past 400 plus years. Because those kingdoms, they don't hunger for, for righteousness, do they? What do they hunger for? They hunger for power. And those kingdoms aren't merciful, they're merciless. And those kingdoms aren't pure in heart, they're impure. And they aren't peacemakers, they make war, right? And they aren't the the persecuted, they're the persecutors. And so every time Jesus speaks, he's proclaiming that there is finally some good news. And that good news is that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And there's a vital truth in that statement that, that I hope you understand, that you need to understand. That Jesus is not speaking to them of some future kingdom in some sort of celestial disembodied state in the clouds. Like if we read Jesus' words about his kingdom as some sort of future statement about some future place in some future time where we all just sort of escape earth, we're missing the reality of what Jesus is actually proclaiming. Because late in that sermon, as Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, I want you to pay close attention to the language that he begins to use. He says, this then is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth. On earth as it is in heaven. And what you ought to begin to see here is that the kingdom of heaven is not a place that Christians just sort of escape to. It's a place where heaven and earth begin to converge, where they come together. That The good news of the kingdom of heaven is not some lesson in delayed gratification. And it's not something that will come when, when their life ends. N.T. Wright, I think, describes this reality in in perfectly poetic terms, better terms than I could. He said the kingdom of heaven for them is, is already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. And I want you to think about what he's saying, because Jesus' message for his disciples was as much a statement of their present reality as a statement about their future one. God's kingdom was both already here and still not yet fully mature. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it is near, and it's a kingdom that they can belong to right now. Now you might be thinking, man, this is really confusing. Like what was Jesus talking about? Or like what is Josh talking about right now? And if you're asking that question, that's okay. Because Matthew begins to show us that it wasn't obvious to Jesus' disciples either. And so how does this all work? Well, Jesus begins to use analogies, many of them, in fact. I think I counted 11 just in the Gospel of Matthew alone. 
And he uses them to better describe his kingdom and, and how to belong to it. And so over and over and over again, Jesus sits with his disciples and he says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he compares it to a, a man sowing seeds of wheat that grow together with the weeds. He says that the wheat will be separated and saved while the weeds will be destroyed. He compares the kingdom to, to mustard seeds, this tiny little seed, he says, that becomes this massively large plant. He says the kingdom is small now, but it's, it's going to grow into something that's massive, something that others can take refuge in. He compares it to yeast and a batch of dough that, that works its way throughout the entire batch. That the kingdom will spread throughout the entire word, world and it will grow and it will expand. He compares it to, to treasure hidden in a field where the kingdom is so valuable, so priceless that you'd be foolish not to go and give up everything you own, sell it all just so you can buy this field. Jesus wants them to see that the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. And that has two massive implications for their lives and for ours. Number one, that the kingdom of heaven exists amid the kingdoms of this world but is separate from them. And number two, it's that you cannot serve two masters or two kingdoms. And so in Matthew chapter eight, Jesus is approached by this Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, someone who, who lives in service to the kingdom of Rome because he needs help. His, his servant needs to be healed. And what we see lived out is that from within the kingdom of Rome comes this soldier who instead puts his faith in and his hope in a different kingdom and a different king. But the Roman centurion story models in so many ways what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like and how the kingdom of heaven is being established from within the kingdoms of this world. These, these little pockets of Jesus' kingdom are popping up everywhere. All these places where Jesus is king, they begin to form and these seeds are being planted and the real kingdom, the kingdom of heaven begins to take root seemingly behind enemy lines. For me, it kind of harkens back to images of the, the Trojan horse in Greek mythology, right? Where the most effective way to conquer the city was not from the outside in with the city walls, but to find its way in and work out. It was an inside-out kind of kingdom. And that is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is an inside-out kind of kingdom. And so for, for modern-day examples, we look no further than somewhere like North Korea, modern-day North Korea, or modern-day China as examples of how this works. Because both places are places where, for all intents and purposes, the, the church is counter to the kingdoms in which they exist. And it is therefore not welcome, and, and yet from within, the church begins to grow. Uh, one article I read this week about North Korea said that one of the things that Christians there will try to do is they'll send each other little text messages, not with, not with uh, scripture or anything like that, but with, with Christian-themed words that they can get away with, like peace or joy. Why? Well, that's one of the ways that they've found that they can begin to proclaim Christ's kingdom from within the kingdom of North Korea. In a similar way, the, the Chinese government surprisingly actually does allow some Christian churches there. But what you, you learn is that those churches are, are basically managed and operate under the authority of the kingdom of China or the government. And so one of the reasons why house churches have become so important and such a big deal in China 
is because that's the one way that they've ensured that Christ remains the head of the church, the head of his kingdom, and not the Chinese Communist Party. And so in the same way, Christ, uh, Christ's kingdom is being proclaimed from within the kingdom of China. And I think sometimes as Americans, it can be kind of hard for us to, to see the significance of Jesus' message. But the story of the Roman centurion or the North Korean Christian or the Chinese Christian is that they're all stories which remind us of why the kingdom of heaven is such good news. That from within the kingdoms, with temporal and superficial power comes a kingdom and a king with real everlasting power, the power to rescue and the power to save. And so what the Roman centurion understood that frankly so many of us miss is that as powerful as Rome was, Rome only had the power to take life. They never had the power to heal and they certainly never had the power to give life. And so in his most desperate moment, in moments of, of hopelessness, there was, there was nothing mighty Rome could do for him. The power to give life was Jesus's alone because only Jesus has the power to save. No kingdom of this world can do that. But that's not the rhetoric that we so often use when we look at the, the brokenness that surrounds us today. There's a, there's a significant percentage of our country right now who believe that only Donald Trump can save us from the evil Democrats. And on the flip side, there's a significant percentage of our country right now who believes that only Joe Biden can save us from the evil Republicans. And so we speak and we behave as though the results of our elections spell this certain doom for all that we know, for all that we love. And yet from within this nation in which we live, a subversive Jesus calls us to him. The kingdom of heaven has come near and he prays to his father, your kingdom come, your will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. The message of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Nothing less. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All of it. Church, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is a gospel that not only reminds us of the matchless power of Jesus, but frees us from the ways of this world and the kingdoms that belong to it. Because kingdoms of this world, they only have the power to take life. They never have the power to give it. But the kingdom of heaven gives life everlasting. And in Matthew 26, as the kingdom of heaven seems to be under attack and Jesus the Messiah comes under arrest, there's this poignant moment where a disciple, John later tells us it was Peter, reaches for his sword and he strikes the ear of the servant of the high priest and he cuts it off. And we read that, we read that and everything in our flesh just wants to cry out like, yes, you got what you deserve. Like leave Jesus alone. Why? Why do we react that way? Well, look around us. Look around us right now. Read the headlines in the news this week. 
Because that's what the world all around us is doing at the first sign of unrest. What do they do? They take up arms. They put bullets in people. But what does Jesus do? (laughs) He looks at Peter and he says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. He said, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will send, uh, you know, 12 legions of angels to come rescue me? But he says, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And so according to Luke's gospel, Jesus reached out and he touches the man's ear and he heals him. And he says, no more of this. Church, in that moment, Peter did what every boy in the history of the world has prepared themselves to do. He believed that Jesus needed to be saved from evil, and he took up every superpower that he had to protect him. He took up a sword, he took up arms, and Jesus rebuked him for it. Because Jesus didn't need military power to be the kingdom, or to be the king, or to bring the kingdom of heaven. He reminded his followers, he reminds all of us that if that was all it took, he could have brought legions and legions of angels and made quick work of anyone and anything that got in his way. He was that powerful. But that's not what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like yeast and mustard seeds and hidden treasures and pearls of great price. It's different than any other kingdom that this world will ever know. The kingdom of heaven is priceless. And so many people spend their lives right now preaching the good news of a different kingdom where Christ is not king and where power is found in bullets and bombs. And I got to tell you this, church, the bloodshed of the kingdoms of this earth cannot save us. The kings and presidents and prime ministers of this earth cannot save us. The economic paradigms of this earth and policies, they cannot save us. The kingdoms of this earth cannot save us. Only Jesus has the power to save. At the beginning of this message, I asked you two questions. What or who is the evil that you see in the world today? And what or who is the answer? I don't know what you came up with. And I don't much care what the answer to the first question is, to be totally frank. But I guarantee you that I know the answer to the last one. Only Jesus has the power to save. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'm going to guess that you agree with that statement. I'm going to guess that you believe that that salvation is found only in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I'm going to guess that you'd say that he's your king. And I'm going to guess that you'd say his kingdom is your kingdom. So let me ask you this. If someone read your Facebook, your Reddit, your Twitter, your Instagram, your Tumblr, your text messages, your emails, or somehow could read your mind, would they believe that Jesus was your king and his kingdom, your kingdom? Or would they get the sneaking suspicion 
that maybe you had a different king in a different kingdom or we're trying to serve two masters. Church, someday that the dead will rise, but only one king has the power to raise him. How you got in that grave matters very little in the grand scheme of eternity, but only one king and one kingdom can bring you up from out of that grave and into eternal life with God. And in that moment, who are you going to call on in that time of need? And when that time comes, will Jesus say, hey, I, I, I never knew you. Church, only Jesus has the power to save. This message is a sobering reminder of the power of the gospel, the power of the kingdom of heaven. And it is a kingdom that is both already and not yet. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom that you can belong to, even you today. And Jesus can be your king. You know, we can pay lip service to his kingdom all day long, but he sees the depths of our hearts. So which kingdom does your heart belong to? Because I suspect that much of the division and the disunity that we're experiencing in our world and our country right now today in 2020 is rooted in people who, like Isaiah says, honor Jesus with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. Church, the, the kingdom of heaven is open to Roman centurions, to tax collectors, and to people who are zealously opposed to Rome. It's a diverse kingdom of diverse people, but it's comprised of a people who all agree on one core truth that only Jesus has the power to save. And in him they have put their hope because he loved them enough to take on the punishment of their sins on the cross. That if you believe that a blameless Jesus was nailed to a cross, died a sinner's death, and rose to a new life on the third day, then Jesus has the power to save you. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've come from. Jesus came to rescue people like you and me and to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. And so if you are ready to leave the broken ways of the kingdoms of this world behind and put your hope in Jesus as king, I want to invite you to that this morning. Would you email us? If you email us at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. We would love to walk you through your journey to Jesus. Only Jesus has the power to save. Tell someone that on Facebook right now, on YouTube right now, wherever you are. God bless you, my friends. I'll see you next week.